0: The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. I've heard time and time again people coming to Sacred City saying, I knew it was a church plant, I was expecting the music to suck, and it totally doesn't. Right? Understatement of the year right there. Uh, We've been blessed, man. That was phenomenal, man. Thank you very much for that. It was good for my soul this morning. I um, want to welcome you to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I'm the pastor here. i um, blessed, excited that you're here with us this morning um, to celebrate the gospel. I got one quick announcement. That's it. This afternoon from 3 to 5 at our offices, 1411 Brady Street. We have our first ever membership class. So for those of you who call Sacred City your home, please be there at 3 o'clock. We'll have some coffee, some finger foods and stuff available for you from 3 to 5. Babysitting is free. It's there um, at the center. Downstairs, they'll be having a little movie night and uh, hanging out with with, uh, a babysitter. So come on out 3 to 5 and and, uh, find out a little bit more about Sacred City. What is membership? What's the point of it? What's the purpose? Should you do it? Um, Come out and find out, please. 3 to 5. This afternoon, if you're not gonna be able to make it It's the next three weeks um, But you would still like to find out more We're going to have the audio available So you can get caught up if you miss a week um, We'll have the audio available for you So, if you would go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 I'm gonna go ahead and pray and get started Father, we thank you for your spirit We thank you for your son We thank you that you are the eternal God, three in one we don't, we don't understand that with our mind, but we believe it by faith because you reveal it to us in your word that you are three and you are one. You are the eternal God of God. And this morning you've called us. You, by your sovereign will and your sovereign plan, have destined for us to be here. And you've anointed my mind and anointed my voice to preach your word and we thank you for it. We give all the glory to God. We give all the glory to God to your son. And we ask this morning that you would think through our minds, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would hear through our ears, that you would give us the eyes and the ears and the hearts of faith. Father, help me communicate your gospel and communicate this truth, these truths from Genesis 44 and 45 clearly. Again, this is for your glory. This is for our joy. We thank you that you've placed us here in the city to be a light. And we ask that you would uh, do good through us today in your name. Amen. Again, welcome to Sacred City Church. If you're new with us, uh, we've slowly been making our way through the entire book of Genesis. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the first book of the entire Bible. Uh, we've been doing this over the past year. Basically, this is the I think if I'm right, this is the 46th week that we've been sitting and studying in the book of Genesis. And I hope over the past year that Genesis and these narratives have kind of come alive for you and you've been able to see them with a new lens. I hope God has been slowly changing the way that you view the Old Testament and the way you view the book of Genesis over this past year. I know it's uh, been immensely helpful for myself. And today we reach the climax... Of the story of Joseph, the last ten chapters of the book of Genesis, are the story of Joseph. Today, we're reaching the climax, the peak of this story. Um, Joseph, if you remember, he's a man who was intimately aware and acquainted with loss and pain. He's no stranger to the fact that the world is that we live in right now is broken. Do you know that? Do you know that the world that we live in today is broken? Families break down, brothers turn against brothers, relationships fall apart, jobs are lost, finances gets tight, things break down, right? I think we should all be able to resonate with Joseph this morning. We should be able to resonate with this story. Something about our world that we live in isn't right. Why is life so hard? Why is it so hard to get along with people? Why is it so hard to have long-term relationships? Why is it so easy to have uh, momentary relationships and then drop them and go on to the next one? Why is it so hard to have friends that last decades? If you're young, you might not sense this as deeply as those of us who've been around a little while. I'm only 34, but I've been around a little while. We're a young church, and one of the joys of my job that I get to do as a, pastor of a young church is I get to do a lot of pre-marriage, pre-marriage counseling. And it always surprises me when I ask this young person, I say, well, let's talk about conflict. How was your last argument? Tell me about your last argument. And they look at me like, no, 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 you, you misunderstand. Like, Justin, we love each other. Like, she's, she's sweet. And he, he's a great guy. And what Fighting? You realize we're Christians, right? They look at me like this is a foreign concept. This argument is fighting, right? Now, any of us who've been married for more than a month can testify to the fact that marriage will be full of fights, arguments, pain, frustration, and difficulties. Am I correct? Okay. Now, listen, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Those engaged couples are going, oh, don't. Don't get me wrong. It will be great as well. There will be, there will definitely be uh mountaintop moments, but if you've ever climbed a mountain, which I have, if you ever climbed a mountain, you know that there's not this little nice and neat staircase that leads up to the top, right? With guardrails on both sides. Right? There's no elevator that takes you to the top. If you climb a mountain, if you want the views that you get from a mountain, if you want the experience and the euphoria, the, just the, the, the awe and grandeur, you're going to have to go through some difficulties. You're going to have to go through some dangerous moments. Some moments where you think you might die. Marriage is hard. Family is hard. Relationships are hard are difficult. Living in a missional community family is difficult. Now, can I ask you, how do you react to that reality? Why do you think life is that way? Why is life hard? Why are relationships difficult? Why is it so hard to stay in a loving, committed relationship with someone? Why is that so hard? See, our culture... And many people in our world and our neighbors and our friends and our family, they don't have an answer for that. They don't have an answer for why things are so hard. It's just an evolutionary principle. We don't have a concept of why things are difficult. Why is there evil in the world? There's no reason behind it. So what do we do? We just blindly push forward in life. We put our head down and don't worry about it. And when things get tough in our relationships, what do we do? We bail on them. And we seek new ones, right? We, we break up, we cut ties, we, you know, the person that sins against us, a person that hurts us, when things get hard and relationships start to break down, we bail and we go to the next one. Relationships, missional communities, churches, if relationships get difficult and things get tough, quit and go to the next one. How does that work out? Listen, if we lived long enough, we would understand that it's all a big circle. It's a vicious cycle. Things never get fixed. See, we get things get tough and we bail on the relationships and we seek out new ones in hope that the next relationship, the the next church, the next missional community, the next husband, the next wife will be all mountaintops and no valleys. All mountaintops and no danger. All ecstasy and no difficulty. And this is the predominant view of our culture today. But the Bible says that it's a faulty view. It's a wrong worldview. It's a wrong way of thinking. That the Bible tells us that God created everything good, right, and perfect. But we human beings have screwed things up that we've sinned and rebelled against our God and things are not the way they should be any longer. Because of our sin, God has cursed creation and He's cursed us and now things are really difficult. But also, when we go to the Bible, we learn that things are not the way they should be, but they're not the way they will be either. That's a One of the beautiful things about the gospel is that God is right now recreating all things and he's fixing all things that have been broken. All the whole creation, all of our relationships, all of that will be mended in the new heavens and the new earth when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom. The world that we're all wanting, the world that we all are waiting for, the world that we're all hoping for, it is coming. But right now, every bit of creation has been infected and affected by sin. And that is why everything in our world breaks down. Cars break down, <clears throat> relationships break down, families break down, our bodies break down. And everything in life is on a path towards degeneration. Joseph knew this, see? Joseph had witnessed his brothers turn on him, disown him, and secretly sell him off into slavery. He had worked honestly and self-sacrificially for his boss, only to be deceitfully accused of raping his boss's wife. And subsequently, then he was wrongly imprisoned for many years of his young life. Joseph was acquainted with the pressures and the pain and the hurt of this life. Joseph understood sin. He understood the breakdown of creation and that things aren't meant to be perfect right now, or they're not going to be perfect right now. And the painful havoc that's caused in our lives by sin. He had personally felt the weight of sin. See, he had lost everything. Joseph had lost his family, he had lost his friends, he had lost his inheritance. He even lost the entire generation of his 20s. Some of us would like to have that one back, right? Can I get a redo on my 20s? I would do well with that, right? But he lost his entire 20s rotting away inside a prison cell. Think about that. That's a lot. Joseph has lost a lot. Joseph has had a lot taken from him. Wrongly. Am I right? There would be a lot of hurt and pain involved in that. And this, so many times, this kind of realization. Like many of us, we live in this world where we think that I don't want to see what Justin's talking about today because I want to think that the next pair of jeans and the next relationship and the next car and the next house, I want to believe, I want to believe that the next thing will make me happy. That the next thing will satisfy me. I don't want Justin to snap me out of this. I don't want the gospel to reorient my worldview. I want to live like that next thing will make me happy. Right, and, and I pray that today the gospel would be a smelling salt to you and you, your eyes would pop open and you would be made alive and you would see that what you're chasing after is like sand for a thirsty person. You think you fill in your water bottle with that sand that you're going to down it and you're going to be quenched. And it's not going to happen. See... Sometimes, when we come to this realization that, the, that life is difficult and that pain is going to happen and that relationships are really hard and really messy, sometimes an evil happens in this world. Some kind of that can completely devastate a person. They want to throw their hands up and say, Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do relationships break down? Why do siblings hate each other? They want to give up and say, There's no point in life. Right? I might as well do what's going to make me happy in the moment. I might as well cheat on my spouse. I might as well go to internet pornography. I might as well get drunk and forget about it. I might as well go to drugs. I might as well eat, eat until I'm happy. We want to go to these other things because we don't want to deal with the realization of life. But what we see with Joseph is that he sees the reality of sin and he sees how this world is not how it used to be. But we see something else as well. And this is critical for us. See, Joseph knows that the same God who cursed creation because of man's rebellion is also in the process of restoring creation. We see Joseph's heart, even though he's down in a dungeon and he's in a pit, we see his heart softened by grace instead of hardened by the struggles of his life. We see Joseph being gracious. Last week we saw him being gracious to his brothers Because God had been gracious to him. And what we're going to see today is one of the the greatest examples of of the Christian's hope. Christian's hope for the future. See, here it is. God fixes things. God restores. God rebuilds. God reconciles. God reverses the curse. God regenerates. God makes things new. God changes people. Yes, things break down. Yes, relationships pull apart. But God, in His grace, has the power to put them back again. And in fact, He's doing that right now. The whole world is on this path of regeneration. So here's the point. Reconciliation. What does that mean, reconciliation? Reconciliation means two parties are at odds. Two parties are opposed. Maybe there's a two parties are enemies. They're at enmity with each other. Reconciliation is they're brought together again. They're made right. That reconciliation is possible, but it's costly. It's not flippant. It's not easy. Reconciliation is possible, but it's costly. Relationships are painful and messy, but they can last if people are willing to pay the price Of reconciliation. Marriage is difficult. But it can be beautiful. And it can last a lifetime. Even into eternity. If people know how to reconcile. So that's where we're headed today. Do you have any relationships. That need to be reconciled? I'll let that sit. Let that seep. Let that marinate for a second. Do you have any relationships. That need to be reconciled? See. Joseph's. Ruse comes to its climactic finale this week. Joseph has been uh, recreating the circumstances of his own betrayal in dramatic fashion. See, his brothers betrayed him and sold him into slavery. And now Joseph's been putting the pieces together of this dramatic story to kind of catch their brother, his brothers. He's creating the scenario where the brothers will once again have a chance to betray one of their brothers for their own benefit. So that's where we are. Genesis chapter 44. Now listen, I, I last week was one of my favorite sermons in the entire book of Genesis and it went an hour and a half. And it was one chapter. I have to cover chapters ch- 44 and 45. Could you just pray for speed and grace on me today? I mean, we do have a membership meeting at three. So you've got that going for you. Okay, here we go. Genesis 44, verse 1. Since we didn't, we didn't have a reader because it's so long, I'm going to read it. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some sitting in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, you can take those. Those are our gift to you. You can download our app, Sacred City, Church, or Sacred City in your app store. You can look it up in Version Genesis chapter 44. Here we are in the middle of Joseph's ruse, Joseph's plan to catch his brothers. Then he, Joseph, commanded the steward of his house... Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Remember, his brothers had came to Egypt to uh, buy grain because there was a worldwide famine going on. And Egypt was the only place, because of the wisdom of God, wisdom was the only place that they could buy food. And they were coming to buy, and they were coming to get their brother back. And they were bringing Benjamin, their younger brother... To Joseph because Joseph had requested uh, that that they bring him. And they don't know Joseph is Joseph. They think Joseph is just the prime minister of Egypt. They don't know it's their own little brother that they sold off into slavery many years before. And now Joseph, he's giving them all the food and then he's sneaking their money back in their sack to freak them out. Okay, he's already did this once. This is the second time he's doing that. Look at verse 2. And put my cup, the silver cup, this is a special cup. He's got a special sippy in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. It's a special privileged son. That's his only blood brother with the same uh, mom, Benjamin, with his money for the grain. And, he, and the steward did as Joseph told him. As soon, so, so we get what's going on. Joseph's got a special little sippy, right? He sends it. He says, put this in Benjamin's sack, okay? He's setting up the brother's. He's setting them up. Let's keep reading. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this, is not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination. You have done evil in doing this. Now listen, Joseph is laying it on thick right here. If you remember last week, these brothers, they just think he's the prime minister of Egypt. They don't realize it's his brothers. And he invited them to this feast of grace. And he did what? How did he seat them? Oldest to youngest. He set him in birth order. And all these kids, all his brothers sitting there like, holy crap. How does this guy know our ages? How does he know how to seat us? This guy must be a little G God. Because that's Pharaoh, you know, uh, in Egypt, Pharaoh, they had polytheistic. They believed that all kind of different gods existed. Maybe this Joseph is a god, a little g. Maybe he's a, a god. And now he's laying it on extra thick. He says, don't you know that this is a cup that I practice divination in? And divination, what it basically is, is in their cup, they would pour water and then they would pour oil and they would read. You know, it's kind of like palm reading and, and, and they pour water and, and uh, wine and watch how they separate. And the Egyptians believed that they could interpret dreams and they could uh, see the future and they could do all these funky things. And Joseph now is acting like he's just this godless Egyptian. He's acting like he's uh, inspired by the demonic, that, he's, that he uses divination. He's really freaking out the brothers, right? He's laying it on extra thick. Now let's keep reading. <clears throat> When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. So the steward has done it. The steward is caught up with the brothers and he speaks to them those words. He said, why have you stolen these things? Right? And look what the brothers say. They say to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is founded with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. Listen to this. Remember we saw last week how the brothers had this propensity, like all human beings, for self-righteousness. Like, I would never. I'm a good person. Oh, oh, I'm appalled that you would think of that. Think that of me. Right? Like, oh, I'm a righteous person. And these brothers here show their self righteousness. They say, he accuses them of, listen, he accuses them of stealing. We would never. Oh, I can't believe you suggest such a thing. I am, I'm not that bad, I'm innocent. I'm an honest man. I'm a believer. I'm a good person. Now listen, we, we got a first-hand depiction of this. I don't know if you watch the news or watch ESPN. We got a first-hand depiction of this this week. The Eagles wide receiver, Riley Cooper, uh, he was at a Kenny Chesney concert, and he was caught on video. Someone's brilliant little iPhone uh, recorded him uh, cussing out and, and, and giving a derogatory racial slur. Right? Speaking vehemently against other races and threatening to beat people, beat people up and just do it. I mean, saying stuff that should never be said. And this video went viral and he got in a lot of trouble. Released from camp, a lot of, a lot of trouble. And this is what he does. He comes out and there's a video of him now. He's a press conference, right? Call the press conference in. Let me weep and do this thing like everybody's supposed to do. Right? And this is what he says. I, I couldn't believe it. Well, I could believe it because it's in the Bible. He goes, you know what? I'm really sorry for saying that. That's not who I am. I was raised by good parents. I'm better than that. I'm not that type of person. I was drunk. So he says, see how he, this is self-righteousness. You're caught on video saying derogatory racial slur, but that's not, I'm not that type of person. This is, what, this is the foolishness of, of our sinful self and our self-righteousness that we want to say, I'm not what I do. Wait, wait, wait. No, you are what you do. That is how you judge if a person is good, right, and perfect. Not by what they think they are, but Jesus says by what comes out of their heart. And sometimes it takes being drunk to see what was really in your heart that comes out, right? You're drunk, so now your walls are gone, now your your inhibitions are removed, and who you really are comes out. So, Riley Cooper is a racist at heart. I'm sorry that's harsh and that might be really bad, but that is really his heart, that's what's coming out of him. If it wasn't in there, it couldn't come out. And these brothers here, just like that. Well, oh, it's not me. I would never think about what do these brothers have? These brothers have already stole their brother. They've already sold him, pocketed the cash, lied to dad. Yeah, some animal killed him. It's really bad, dad. Dad's weeping, tearing his clothes, crying, and they're like, stuff. It's, it's difficult. It's really hard. Right lying and now he's accusing them joseph he's setting them up he set the silver cup in there he's accusing him we would never we would never steal somebody's favorite thing never right then what happens he said let it be as you say he who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground i love this you know they're anxious to prove themselves right right i am not a bad person watch this whips his bag out look ooh and there's all the money's in there and it comes off one after the other and then benjamin the youngest the special privilege daddy's favorite he opens his sack and there sits the silver chalice keep reading Verse 12, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then, look at this. This is a game changer right here, guys. This is a game changer in the brothers' lives. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and he returned to the city. They tore their clothes. This is kind of an ancient practice. I kind of think we should uh, rejuvenate it a little bit. Right, anytime something goes bad, Oh! Ah! Right, what happened? Now I got really upset today. I hulked out. Right, Right, but they, this is actually an ancient sign in the Hebrew of, of repentance, of of mourning. It's the same thing that Dad did when they found out uh, that Joseph was died. So they're grieving now. They're mourning, and I want I want you to see the difference in these brothers. Like, this is the game-changing moment for them. They're tearing their clothes. Is confirmation that their character has now been changed. They are showing a new affection for their father and their younger brother. They're grieved. Right here in this moment, they have an opportunity to go, Oh, sucks to be you, Benjamin. Deuces. Right? That's what they did with Joseph. Right? Leave him alone. They have that opportunity here again, but instead they're grieved. Their heart is hurt. They're torn. That God has been doing something in them. Joseph's ruse, his plan is, is changing something about their nature. And then let's see what happens. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Once again, this vision that Joseph had of his young in his young life was come into fruition. And Joseph said to them, he's still playing. What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? I love it. It would be better if it was in an English accent. And Judah said, look at this, and Judah said, remember what happened last week? Where Judah, dad wasn't going to let Benjamin go to Egypt because dad had still playing favorites and Judas stepped up and Judas stepped in. And he said, dad, I will be his surety. I pledge my life for his, I will bring him back to you. I pro let me be responsible for Benjamin. Look, it's easy to say that, right? Ladies and gents, it's easy to stand at the altar and pledge commitment and pledge loyalty and fidelity for all of life. It's easy to stand before God and say before God and these witnesses that in, in sickness and in health I'll be there, richer or poorer I'll be there. It's easy to say that until he loses his job. And then that poorer thing, you didn't, I didn't really, I didn't, oh, he needs, brother needs a job. Right? He does need a job, that is correct. Right? But when when the vows, the vows are meant for difficulty. The vows are meant for the times where you don't want to keep the vows. That's when the vows mean something. When you make a commitment to be somewhere, the commitment means something when you don't want to be there. When you got to wake up in the morning. When you got to get up early. When you got to be at prayer meeting. When whatever is coming up. When you don't want to be there, the vow it helps you get there. That's what it's, it means something in the moment. So now... Benjamin is busted. The brothers are all busted, but Benjamin especially is busted. And Judah has made this pledge to be his safety, to be his redeemer, to be the one there. And now in this moment, Judah has a chance to go, well, I, I, you know, really? Do I really need to step up? That's his own fault. It's his own. I told that kid to stop stealing stuff. He's been stealing stuff since he was two told him to stop it, right? You cannot take what's yours. Does he let him have his own sin? Does he let him have the consequences of his sin? What does Judah do? Benjamin's caught. Judah said. Judah steps up again. When it's on the line, in the difficulty, in the heat of the moment, when he could let his brother eat the consequences of his sin, Judah steps up. Man, I pray that we'd be people that would step up. What shall we say to my Lord? It's Judah speaking. What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Listen, Judah steps up and Judah steps in. Now there's this theological concept that's called penal substitutionary atonement our whole faith stands on it it's the foundation of everything we believe penal substitutionary atonement and we get a picture of it right here what does it mean it means that sin was committed and that sin deserves judgment and wrath but another person, so that's penal, okay? Something was done wrong and there's a penalty for it, right? We get that? That's the penal. There was sin, there was wrong committed. So now judgment should happen, right? If you do something wrong, the law says some, you should have to pay for that, correct? Am I? Are you with me? Okay, penal, substitutionary. Someone, another person, steps in, a sinless person, a person who did not commit the offense, that person steps in to take the punishment and the wrath that you deserve, or that that person deserves, thereby making the other person, the guilty party, free from the punishment that they deserve. Okay? Substitutionary atonement. Atonement, making things right. Penal, there's a... Penalty substitution: somebody else takes that penalty. Atonement by the work by this work, you make the person right, you make the person guiltless. They get to go free because the other person pays the penalty. Judah is himself a substitutionary atonement. He's stepping in for Benjamin. Take me, make me your servant. Take my life for his. This is a picture of the gospel of what Christ. Has done for us. Judah here offers to Joseph what we're about to see is the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. And he does three things. One, he says, um, I, We're actually innocent of this theft. We didn't steal this. We're innocent of this theft, but this is a result of God's judgment upon us for previous sins. This the, we're, we're guilty. We, we didn't do this, but we're guilty of the same thing. And then lastly, he offers them up, the whole all the brothers, he offers them up as slaves. He says, take our life and let Benjamin go free. Listen to this. Do you see the beauty that's in this chapter? Guys, people can change through the power of the gospel. Judah, a few chapters ago, sold his brother into slavery. He was a lawless, rebellious young man. He's not supposed to marry the Canaanites. The first sexy young thing he sees, he marries, hooks up with her, gets her pregnant, right? Like, he he rebelled against the ways of God. He rebelled against God's covenant. He was then deceitful to his daughter-in-law and wouldn't give her into marriage to his youngest son. He was sleeping with prostitutes. He was then, which was his daughter in law, real freaky, got redneck on us for a while. And he was ready to kill his daughter in law for getting pregnant outside of wedlock, right? That was Judah. And today, look at him now. He's a godly, humble man with a depth of character that can only be created by an experience of grace. Judah was a liar but now he's a man of his word. When the moment comes where he should abandon his brother, he steps up and says, no, it's on me. Judah was a slave trader, but now he's willing to be a slave in order to save his brother and keep his father from further grief. This is a complete life change. Now, listen, I'll be honest with you. This is the best part of my job. This is the absolute best part of my job. I get a front row seat at God changing people. And repentance, repentance is absolutely beautiful. When you see a hard-hearted person go from death to life, there's nothing like it. When you see a person that's been living one way for themselves, God flipped the script on their life and then, then received the grace of God and their countenance change and their, their morality change and their beliefs change and everything about them change. It's phenomenal. I've got to witness God. Take people, take gangbangers and drug users and drug, you know, Sellers, I get to watch God do take them out of that lifestyle, change their entire life around, sit them into a missional community, leading missional communities, and I get to just see the brilliance that takes place in a story of redemption. It's phenomenal. This church is full of people like that. God has been so gracious to us. Repentance is beautiful. Life change is gorgeous. It's the best part of my job. By far, it's the best part of my job. And right now we see in this story, we see the turning point. Okay, look at verse 18. Then Judah went up to him, Judah going up to Joseph. He says, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you, and he's going to go. Now, listen, he's going to, we're going to skip this part just because he's just going to rehearse everything that Joseph did. And Joseph told him to do in that last chapter. Okay. Go home and get Benjamin, bring Benjamin to me. Let's go to verse 27. Then your servant, my father said to us. Look, this, this part, this is how, you know, Joseph, Judah has drastically changed. I'm going to tell you, this statement that Judah is about to utter to Joseph is a painful, it's full of hurt. It's full of animosity. It's full of the, the, the sinful pain that favoritism in a family can cause. This is latent with that. It's latent with emotion. This phrase is whatever your wound is in your life, whatever it is that somebody can touch and set you off, the most intimate, the most, um, the, the deepest, the, the most uh, open wound that you have in your soul. Whatever it is. It could be favoritism. It could be um, sin that's been done against you, like rape or abuse. Whatever that thing is, that's the most open wound. Okay? This is that for Judah. Listen to what he says, what his dad said. Then your servant, my father, said to us, said to who? The brothers. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one, Benjamin, also from me, and harm happens to him, you'll bring my you'll bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you hear that? What's Jacob, what's Jacob say to his sons? Hey, I've got one wife and two sons. Jacob has four wives and 12 sons. But we know the sin of Jacob. that He loved Rachel more than he loved anyone else. And Rachel, his prized possession, his precious. Right? She had two sons, Benjamin and Joseph. That the brothers grew up in this atmosphere. The brothers grew up in this broken family like all of us grow up inside. Broken families that have been tarnished and tainted by sin. And he grew up knowing those are his favorites. Those are daddy's favorites. We're not like those two. Daddy loves their mom more than he loves our mom. And and, and Judah, when Judah steps up. When Judas steps up to Joseph, he recounts this. He recounts this sinful tendency. He's basically saying, I'm nothing to my father. I'm nothing to my father. I've never been anything to my father. But Benjamin is. Benjamin's important. Benjamin's his chosen, his special, his precious. And please don't let his precious be taken from him. Take me. I'm worthless to my father. Take me as a substitute for my father. Take me. I'm worthless, Benjamin's special. Can you hear the pain in that statement? But it takes an immense amount of humility to say stuff like that. Judah is a changed man. Now therefore, verse 30, As soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, that's just a picture of idolatry. His life is bound up in the boy's life. Whatever you're bound up in, that's your God. 31, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, dad will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs to your, to, in the shield. Verse 32, for your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame. I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, Judah's begging, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah has stepped up and he stepped in and he's saying, take me. Don't take Benjamin. I know Benjamin has sinned. I know Benjamin has done wrong, but take me in his place. Penal, substitutionary, atonement. This is what Jesus does for us. He says to God, the father, he steps in our place and he says, take me, God, take me, punish me for their sin. This should, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of the gospel. This should move us. This should move us emotionally. And this is the pinnacle. This is where everything tips. This is the turning point. This is the tipping point. This is the game changer. This is the moment. This is the epoch. This is it right here. Judah shows his life change. Judah proves that he believes the gospel by stepping up and stepping in and taking someone, his younger brother, taking his place and taking his punishment. Listen. This is the turning point, like I said. Once Joseph sees this change in Judah and sees this change in his brother, he knows that they've changed. They've repented and they're no longer the callous men that they once were. And Joseph is about to just lose it. But this is an important point right here. I want you to see this. See, Joseph in the past, Joseph's already forgiven his brothers. We saw that in the past three chapters. He's already been gracious towards them. Joseph has already forgiven them, but he hasn't reconciled yet. And there's a big difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. See, in order for Joseph to reconcile with his brothers, they have had to change. They've had to, they have to repent. They have to own their sin. You can't reconcile with someone who's not willing to repent and own their sin. And this is probably the worst part of my job. See, I get a front row seat to people's sin as well. And I I got many friends, there's many people that I care deeply about, people that I've spent hours counseling and caring for, people who have separated from the family of God by their failure to turn from their sin, people that are saying, I know I'm in rebellion, I know I'm sinning, but I want to. I don't want to stop. I don't want to repent. I don't want to own it. And that's painful. It's painful to try to counsel someone and try to love someone and try to remind them of the gospel, to hear them say, I don't want it, I don't have anything to do with it. And with a person like that, reconciliation is impossible. You can't reconcile with someone who's going that direction if you're going this direction. Repentance must precede reconciliation, not forgiveness. They don't have to repent for you to forgive them, but to reconcile, they do. And now look what look at the look at the response. When God does a work in someone's life and they repent and they own it. Look at the response of Joseph, 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all those who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. This is how you know a man is about to ugly cry. <laughs> Believe! Get out! Right? Like is looking at him like, What the heck is going on? Right? His chin is doing the thing. He's trying with everything in him to hold it back. He doesn't know where it's coming from. It's just bubbling up. Get out of here. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that when the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it and Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Now stop right here. Joseph Is this is like hardcore booger crying, right? People are leaving, and the whole household of Pharaohs like, is he crying? The prime minister of Egypt, like just uncontrollable, wailing, boohooing, And think, the brothers still... This, this, this. I could just see this scene in my mind. This is hilarious. The brothers are sitting here. Judah just does his speech, right? Longest speech in Genesis. I'll, ta- I'll stand in the gap. I'll take his place. Take my life for surety for Benjamin's. I'll do it. And then all of a sudden, just, boom, Joseph just starts bawling. And I imagine the brothers are like, ooh. My... Egyptian high royalty booger crying. This would be weird, right? You make your plea before the president, he just loses it in front of you, right? They're thinking, oh man, this guy is unstable. We are dead, right? What is going on? It was a good speech, but it wasn't all that. Joseph is absolutely overcome with emotion. Like he just cannot continue his ruse any longer. See, Judah, after seeing Judah step up and step in and, and, and penal substitutionary atonement play out because Joseph knows that Jesus is coming and that Jesus is the one that's going to make everything right and Jesus is the one that's going to step in and step up and cleanse us of our sins. And when Judah is, gives this beautiful depiction of the gospel, Joseph just loses it, man. He derails, he goes off. I remember when I first started, the gospel started changing my heart a few years ago. And I started, wa- I was watching a movie. I don't even remember what it is now. Oh, yes, I do. I think it was like a river. Uh, what was it? I, it was probably like a. I don't want to say. Never mind. It was a good movie. Anyways. It's about brothers and about these brothers who had, had been uh, separated by sin and how they'd been reconciled at the end. I remember bawling, sitting on the couch, bawling. And my wife looking at me like, what is going on? Like I was not a crier. She probably n- never seen me cry. Or maybe saw me cry once or twice in our entire marriage. And when the gospel started changing my heart, I just couldn't control it. Boo-hoo crying. We see that with Joseph right here. Joseph comes out and he says, "I am your brother Joseph." He's bawling, "I'm your brother Joseph." And I imagine the brothers like, "Oh crap." He's emotionally unstable and we threw him in a pit and sold him 22 years ago. <laughs> I don't see this ending well. Right? Honestly, "I'm your brother Joseph." <gasps> and now and then it, it clicks. The whole ruse, the whole setup It clicks. He found out our guilt. It says the brothers are dismayed. Yeah, they are laid wide open. There is nowhere to run. You're standing before the second powerful man in the world, and you you sold him into slavery 22 years ago, and now you're going. But uh, we're hungry. Can we have some grain? You just sold, you sold the guy 22 years ago. Do you think this is going to end well for you? And now your silver, his silver cup has been found in your bag. This is the moment, right? This is the moment where... Listen, guys. This is the moment where your sin catches up with you. Do you realize the Bible promises that you, your sin will catch up with you? Your sin will find you out? That you're practicing these undercover sins and you're getting really good at hiding things and covering things up? But the Bible promises one day it's going to be exposed. One day you're gonna stand before God, and everything that you've done will be laid out. He stand they're standing before Joseph. Their ruse is over. They're completely explode, they're exposed. They're slave traders, liars, thieves, their brother haters. Listen to me. First John chapter three verse fifteen says that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer at heart, and the kingdom of God is not in them. Eternal life is not in them if you hate your brother. These are brother haters. They sold him off into slavery. Now they're standing before him to be judged. They're not honest men that they've been pretending to be. Who are we? We would never do such a thing. Their masks, listen to this guys. Their masks are removed by Joseph removing his mask. His rules, his ruse has foiled their ruse and the moment of revenge is at hand Joseph says surprise it's Joseph brothers go we can't act like we're good people anymore we can't act like we're honest men anymore he knows the truth he knows who we really are we can't say that's not who I am I'm a good person this guy knows the depth of our sin and they're broken and now the moment of revenge is at hand. Look at verse four. So Joseph said to his brothers, "Come near to me, please." This is probably one of those, "Oh, oh, oh come near." Oh. Right? Like you're like eking forward. Like, oh, what's he got in his hand? What's he got in his hand? Okay. Right. Come near to me. The king said that. You're thinking your head. Your head is probably leaving your body. Come near to me please. This is what God says to you. Can you hear we hear me? This is what Jesus says to you right now. In your sin, in your ugliness, in who you really are, he says come near to me please. Come near. And we think we're coming near for judgment. We think we're coming in and he's going to squish us. But look what Joseph does. I am your brother Joseph. Whom you sold into Egypt, gulp. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. That's what you want to hear. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph, at the moment of revenge, at the moment that justice should be meted out, Joseph chooses grace. He would rather have redemption and reconciliation than revenge. Come near to me, please, he says. Now listen, I would like to go through this litany of scriptures that talks about how the Christian, the one who's believed the gospel, how the one who's been brought into the family of God, how we forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. How we reconcile with others because we've been reconciled with God. Christian, listen to me. You can go to Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13, 2 Corinthians 5.19-20, where he says you've been reconciled to God. You were enemies, and now you've been reconciled to God, and now I've made you ministers. Somebody say ministers. ministers. Well, I'm not a minister. You are a minister if you're in Christ. You're a minister of reconciliation. You've been reconciled to reconcile others. Joseph gets that. Now, let me ask you this. This is the tough question everybody wants to know. What happened? Guys, listen. What happened to the sin done against Joseph? What happened to the wrong? That's been d- displayed to Joe. His brothers wronged him. There was sin there. There was hurt and pain and and, and wounds that would last a lifetime. What happens to those sins? Do, do the brothers just get off scot-free? And now Joseph just has to bear the weight of the sin that's been done to him. Listen, if you've ever been sexually abused, if you've ever been mistreated, if you've been raped, if you've had some horrible atrocity, people leave you. Just walk away and say, I can't handle anymore. I don't want to go through it. It's, the, the vows aren't worth it. The relationship's not worth it. And they just drop you and they move on. Those wounds leave scars. Those are sins that have been done against you. What happens to those sins? What happens to them? You're just supposed to suck it up and go on with your life. Look what Joseph does. He says, don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. God sent me here to preserve life. God sent me before you to do this. It wasn't you. It was God. This is big here, guys. Joseph. He pushes that sin, that weight, that right for justice. He has a right. Joseph has a right. These brothers are here. Joseph has a right to go off with their heads, put them on poles, display to the rest of the world. This is what happens if you sell your brother into slavery. This is what happens to you if you commit sin like this. Joseph has that right. But what does he do? He takes that sin that's been done against him, and he pushes it off onto God this is really important for us to understand. See, anytime someone sins against us, we have a right to seek justice. We have that right. A sin has been done. We have a right to seek justice. They deserve to pay for their crimes. But as Christians, the world doesn't have this. But as Christians, we have this new option. It's called grace. And in grace, listen guys, you don't just forget About all the offenses and move on with life. You don't go, well, that's just under the you know water under the bridge. Move on. You don't just try to bury the hurt and cover up the pain and just forget about it. No. Don't try to do that. That's how anxiety happens. That's how drug addictions happen. That kind of all addictions happen when you try to bottle it up and cover the sin and cover the pain and cover the hurt that's been caused to you. Absolutely not. In the gospel, in Christianity, you take all of that pain and you roll it over onto Christ. See, in the gospel, Jesus has absorbed all of our offenses. All of our sins, all of the pain that we've caused others. He's taken it on himself and he died with it on the cross, completely forgiving us for all time, past, present, future, once and for all. And what God does, he doesn't just forget about your sin and let you go on living your life. He doesn't just overlook it and say, well, you're a good old boy or a good old girl. I guess they didn't mean it. No harm done, right? No harm, no foul. No, God himself pays the price for your sin. Jesus actually paid the debt caused by your actual sins. He paid for it in his body, on the cross, by his blood. That's the gospel. And here, there's repercussions to that. There's implications, there's When you believe the gospel, it bounces around inside of you and there's repercussions to the gospel. To you believing the gospel, there's repercussions to that. Once we realize how much we have sinned against God and how he absorbed our debt and paid it off, giving us free and amazing grace, once we come to know and believe the gospel, we see that there's no way that we can hold on to any grudge. There's no way we can hold on to any offense. There's no way that we can hold on to any sin that's been done to us. He's forgiven us. A huge weight. And now I can forgive others. So people who believe the gospel, they roll their sin, the sin done against them. They roll it over onto God. Jesus paid for that sin as well. Listen, our desire for justice is good, right, and perfect, but grace is higher. Here's what's going to happen. If a believer in Christ sins against you, you can say, father, that sin hurts. That wounds me, but I know you died to cover it. You died to cleanse it. You died to fix it. You died to heal it. And you take that pain you take that sin and you roll it over onto God. If that person is unbeliever, what do you do then? Listen, if that person is unbeliever, first, you should pray for their salvation. Secondly, their sin, when they stand before the judgment seat of God, which we all will, there's two things that happen to your sin. Either your sin is on Christ and paid for, or you pay for your sin yourself in eternal damnation in hell. So there's only two options. When you stand before God, Either Christ paid your debt or you pay your debt. So that person who sins against you is an unbeliever. They will get what's coming to them. Justice will be meted out upon their death or upon Christ's second coming. This is big. Can I ask you this for the Christians in this room? What does it tell the world? When you refuse to reconcile with your brother or sister, that's not good news. That's a false gospel. That's a small gospel. See, Joseph, he's got this huge view of God, he's got a huge view of sin, and therefore he's got a huge gospel lens. We use this thing often around sacred city called the cross chart. Throw it up here, Adam, if you could throw it up, buddy. And what the cross chart says, when I am converted to Christ, I have this growing awareness of God's holiness. I get this bigger vision of God. That's that upward projection, that upward line. As I grow in my, awareness of Christ, my understanding of the gospel gets larger or my understanding of God gets larger and larger and larger. But at the same time, my awareness of my own sin gets larger and larger and larger. But as those two things get bigger, the cross gets bigger. The gospel gets bigger. See, when you refuse to reconcile, you're forgetting the gospel. When you refuse to reconcile, when you leave a church because you can't reconcile a relationship, that is sin. That is displaying to the world a miniature gospel, a small gospel, a false gospel. When you leave a relationship, when you leave a mission community, when you walk away from a friendship or you walk away from a covenant marriage, when you walk away because you can't reconcile, that's because you're not seeing your own sin very well. You're not seeing the bigness of God very well. You need a bigger gospel. With a big gospel in view, reconciliation is possible because God has paid the price. The blood of Jesus is enough. The cross is big enough. If you're refusing to reconcile, can I ask you, what more do you want than the blood of Jesus? You want them to come groveling at your feet? Are you asking for a greater payment than the blood of Christ? Is the blood of Jesus, the sinless, spotless blood of God, is it enough to cover those sins? Listen, one of the best things, you can take that off, one of the best things about reconciliation when brothers and sisters fight and then they have to reconcile, one of the best things about reconciliation is that it points the world to the world that we all want. Every time two sinners reconcile in the sight of God, around the gospel, we get a snapshot of God's kingdom breaking into the present. God's future kingdom breaking into the here and now. This is what our neighbors need to see Christians have an amazing power to forgive and to reconcile because God has forgiven them and they have been reconciled. This is what the church is supposed to be. A bunch of reconciled sinners showing the world the God who reconciles. It's amazing. The rest of this chapter we see Pharaoh come in. Pharaoh's amazed by it. Pharaoh... Loads them down with a huge entourage, sends them back to get Jacob. The brothers come in, they go, "Uh, Dad, we've got to have this kind of difficult conversation. Will you sit down? Okay. The last 22 years we've been lying to you, Joseph's still alive. It says Jacob's heart goes numb. He goes, I don't believe you. (laughs) Then the entourage shows up. Okay, I believe you now. Let's go back to Egypt. We have this amazing picture of reconciliation between these brothers ricocheting around this, this family. And as I close, this is, I think this is just one of the most beautiful scenes in all of scripture. Listen, and here's why it happens. Jesus is their God. Now, if you forget everything else I say, remember this. Their God is Jesus. That's why it happens. You might say, well, this is the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't came yet. Jesus is eternal God, same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is their God. Through this family line comes Jesus. The whole point of this family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Judah, his brother, and Joseph, the whole reason is the nation of Israel is going to be born out of this family. And the reason... Of which is to bring... The reason of the nation of Israel is to bring Jesus Christ. That their God, our God, becomes a man and comes down here to live with us, his brothers. And he's treated, Jesus is treated like Joseph was treated. He's brought up on false charges. He's betrayed. He's hated. He's sent to prison. And ultimately he's put to death. And Jesus, this great God of ours, this great God of theirs, he responds to our need like Judah responded to the need of Benjamin. He steps up and steps in. That's why scripture says that Jesus is from the line of Judah. Hebrews 7.14 says that surely the Lord Jesus is from Judah. Jesus steps up and Jesus steps in. Jesus takes our sin. Jesus removes our shame. Jesus bears in his body our punishment that we deserve. Jesus goes to the cross. He's betrayed by a friend like Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was accused of things he didn't do like Joseph was accused of things he didn't do. And Jesus suffered and died just like Judah was willing to suffer and if need be, die as a substitute. Three days later, Jesus rises. What does he proclaim? Forgiveness. What does Jesus say from the cross? Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. Like Joseph. Reconciliation. See, Judah was a portrait of the substitute. And Joseph is the portrait of the reconciliation. Reconciliation. One day, every single one of us will stand before Jesus. Like these brothers stand before Joseph. And if we, like Judah, repent of our sins, listen to this. Jesus will respond to us like Joseph responded to Judah. And what we'll see is his smile, not his frown. Look at verse 14. This is how Joseph responds to his brothers. Then he fell upon his brother, Benjamin's neck and he wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. There's a lot of crying going on. After that, his brothers talked with him. Friend, will you be reconciled to God? Will you respond like Judah responded in repentance? If you do, Jesus is there. Like Joseph, with a smile, not a frown, with arms of embrace, with tears of joy, Scripture says that every time a sinner repents, all of heaven celebrates. All of heaven throws a party over one sinner. Will you turn to Jesus? Will you be reconciled to God today? What we're about to do now. First of all, I want this to sit. If you need to reconcile with someone, don't resist the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Be reconciled this week. Be reconciled today. Is the gospel big enough? Is it? Is the blood enough? Ask the spirit who it is that you need to reconcile. And then what we're about to do is share a meal as family. See, Jesus, our older brother, like Joseph and Judah has forgiven us and he's reconciled with us. He's made us clean, even though we're dirty. His blood has washed away all of our sinful stains. So this meal today is only for baptized believers. But if maybe even today you've turned from your sin and you've embraced Jesus Christ by faith, please let someone know. Let me know as you leave leave today because we would love to baptize you and welcome you into the family of God. And once you're baptized, you can share this meal with us. Let me pray. God, you are gracious. You deserve to wipe us out. We, you are at most secondary in our life. We, we desire our own glory. We seek our own praise. We seek our own comfort. And we want to use you to get that most of the time. Most of the time you are way down our list. And you deserve all glory and all praise and all honor. And you should wipe us out because of that. You stand in the place of Joseph. Jesus, you stand there and you should condemn us. You should seek revenge. You should wipe us out. But instead, you take our place like Judah. You are so good to us. I pray that we would have eyes to see that, ears to hear that, heart to believe that, and that the repercussions of us believing that would ricochet out in our life and we would forgive those who have wronged us. We would reconcile with those who we want to keep at arm's arms distance and arm's length. And you would do the work that you've done in this family and reconciling them and bringing healing and restoration. You would do that work in all of our families, all of our missional community families, our church family, our friends, our extended, our neighborhood, our city Let us be a people that display the gospel to a watching world. It's all for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.